Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Although the evidence of today's text would indicate otherwise, St. John, the writer of the fourth Gospel account and the three epistles which bear his name, and St. James, his older brother and the first of the original twelve to be martyred, are actually good models for our growth in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Along with St. Peter, who, as you all well know, had his own sort of challenges in following Jesus, James and John were part of the inner circle of the twelve disciples. you got to wonder, though, sometimes, what did poor Andrew think, always being the odd man left out? We often read in the Scriptures about the special relationship which James and John enjoyed with Jesus. They were known as both the sons of Zebedee and the sons of thunder. They got to see Jesus in His full glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were also asked to pray with Him in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before He died. But how are James and John models for our growth in discipleship? Their behavior in this episode is anything but humble and service-oriented. In fact, it's quite the opposite. James and John are not pictured here with halos around their head as you might see them in a stained glass window or a famous Renaissance painting. Instead, we see them here as being ambitious and pushy. They act and they speak as if they deserve great things at the expense of the other disciples. They sound like those who say prayers like they're just ordering room service from a God who's waiting around to deliver what they want. They sound, well, they sound just like you and me, don't they? A few years before I became very aware of popular music, there was a singer by the name of Janis Joplin. Now, I didn't have any knowledge of her until well after she'd thrown away God's gift of life and had died of a drug overdose. But she was still talented, and one of her songs went like this. And feel free to say it along with me if you know the words. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my life. No help from my friends. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? That's James and John in today's text. Lord, do for us what we want. Make us your top guys when you take over. That's you and me when we sometimes pray too. Lord, you know I could use some special treatment here. You know how long and how intensely I've loved you and how long I've been trying to do the right thing. When do I get the big payback for all I've done for you? And so as Jesus' disciples in our own time, the first thing that this text calls us to do is to look inside ourselves with integrity and with strength. For we discover that we have neither. We are dishonest and we are weak every single day. But eventually we must probe our own agendas and our own plans and ambitions and then confess, just like James and John, we have not cared very much about anyone else but ourselves. J 
Janis Joplin's song was not, Oh Lord, won't you buy my neighbors a Mercedes-Benz? She didn't sing, Oh Lord, won't you fill the bellies of the hungry? Or, Oh Lord, won't you rescue the lost and the condemned? Though it was intended to be sort of a tongue-in-cheek condemnation of material, materialism, that song showed, like a lot of comedy does, a degree of bitterness and cynicism toward the kind of false piety that James and John were demonstrating. It's a piety that is very dignified outwardly, but it is meant for one's own benefit and not really interested in meeting the needs of others. We who call ourselves Lutherans often glibly toss around that word grace as if it were an excuse for intentional sins. How easy it is for you and me to see the James and the John and everybody else too. How easy to see the blindness and hear the hypocrisy in others' actions and words. But how much harder it is to see your own ambitions, your own agenda, and your own wants. How much harder it is to confess, Lord, I have prayed selfishly. I have prayed wrongly and repeatedly. My will be done. Have mercy on me, a sinner. We who call ourselves Lutherans often also willingly and frequently forget that the very first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses declares, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, He willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. And so James and John are models for our growth in discipleship and our growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because James and John did not stay where they were where we found them in this text. And neither did Peter nor Andrew nor any of the other twelve except Judas. Jesus' first response to James and John is important for us to hear clearly and to reflect upon. He says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. James and John still don't have any idea what Jesus is saying at this point, and Mark almost wants us to laugh at how clueless they are. Jesus has already told them multiple times that what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected and killed and on the third day rise. At no time has Jesus even hinted that He was going to move into the king's palace in Jerusalem or exercise earthly ruling power. In fact, nothing He has said nor nothing He has done has pointed to the kind of ambitions that James and John have for Him or clearly for themselves as well. But notice that Jesus does not chastise James and John directly as He had Peter when Peter had overstepped his place and tried to inject his own ideas into Jesus' ministry. Instead, Jesus lets the rest of the disciples do the job of letting the air out of James and John's balloon. And wow, did that resentment ever surface. You can almost hear the voices like on a school playground. 
That's not fair. Why should Jimmy and Johnny get ice cream and not us? Why should they get to be Jesus' special helpers? And that's when Jesus steps in and settles everyone down. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. <coughs> Yet even then, neither James nor John nor any of the others get what it means to be Jesus' disciples. Jesus is the truth in human flesh. He is God. He is the one true light. As St. John himself would go on to write many decades later, in him there is no darkness at all. Just standing in the presence of God's own Son, Jesus, James and John and the other ten are illuminated. They are seen and they are known by Him, both for what they are and for what they are not. And like us, they are not whom God has created them to be. Like us, they are in bondage to sin and cannot free themselves. Even though they have been walking with Jesus and learning from Him, they apparently haven't been fully listening or learning or growing to the extent that they should. Why do you think it was that Jesus encountered such hostility and resistance during His earthly ministry? And finally, the murderous attention of those who were in power. It's largely because He is the truth and because He proclaimed the truth. You see, proud sinners cannot handle the truth. And so they rejected Him. They mocked Him. They whipped Him brutally. And they finally nailed Him to a cross where He suffered and died. They just wanted Him to shut up and to go away permanently. And that's the way much of the world treats Jesus still today. They just want Him to be quiet and to leave them alone. When the twelve saw Jesus' arrest and torture and crucifixion unfold, they were terrified. All of them but John left him in the lurch. No, they didn't really want to drink his cup, that cup of suffering and humiliation and execution, nor could they. And how painful it must have been that Good Friday night and the next one too, when all of their words of love and devotion and fidelity were found to be empty. Their failures haunted them as they mourned Jesus' death in terror of what, happened, what might happen to them too. It's painful to know how petty and weak and foolish and selfish you are capable of being. Yes, we are truly in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. That is, that is why God's Son lovingly suffered and died for us and for our salvation. He lived the life that none of us can live and He died the death that none of us could die. You see, before the truth sets us free, sometimes it ticks us off or it scares us. Something is fundamentally wrong with us, and so we need God's Son to save us. Now, we should expect that a, a little girl or a little boy would be childish. And when we are still young in our faith and new to discipleship, it's also to be expected that we, like James and John, will 
oftentimes get it wrong. But that doesn't mean that we are to sit still in our faith and stagnate in our development. That's just not good enough for those who follow Jesus, who is not only the author, but also the perfecter of our faith. When it comes to faith, we are not to choose like Peter Pan whether or not we are going to mature. God knows that there are certainly plenty of childish adults out there walking around, but we do have to distinguish between a, a, an occasional touch of whimsy and the clinging to ongoing immaturity. But the power to change, the power to grow in our faith and our knowledge and our discipleship comes not from within us, but from outside of us. As Martin Luther writes in his explanation of the third article of the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies us through the good news of Jesus Christ and also keeps us in the one true faith. We hear God's Word and it moves us to repentance. In His holy presence, we see what we are and we see what we are not. We know much more about St. John and what he went on to do in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension than we know about St. James. As I said, John wrote the Gospel account and those three epistles that bear his name and of course the book of Revelation as well. He was a respected pastor and teacher in the early church and he wrote against many of the heresies that arose in those early decades. Heresies that still arise today and can still be defeated with God's Word. But John's brother, he who became known later as James the Elder, he didn't stay in a permanent state of spiritual childishness either. He didn't whine when Jesus didn't come to bring an earthly kingdom to Jerusalem. No, James was filled with the Holy Spirit as well, and he proclaimed the good news of Jesus to a hostile world. And we learn from Acts chapter 12 that James did in fact drink the same cup as Jesus. There we learn that Herod Agrippa, the grandson of that Herod who slaughtered all the babies after the wise men's visit, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. We follow Jesus by becoming humble servants all the way to the grave. And if you should hear some other gospel that downplays the cross and talks of earthly glory and success, you should hear it for what it is. A childish, foolish, and just plain wrong interpretation of what it means to follow Jesus. It's a lie. It's a heresy just like James and John had at the beginning of today's text. We learn from James and John's mistakes just like we learn from their faithfulness. But first and foremost, we learn from Jesus, who is always the faithful and true model of righteousness. Paul says in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. When we see Jesus, we see the truth. We see what our Heavenly Father meant us to be before we rebelled and fell into sin. One of our post-communion prayers reads as follows, Always to rule our hearts and minds by Your Holy Spirit, that we may be enabled constantly to serve You through Jesus Christ, Your Son, 
our Lord. And so when we take the true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into our body through the bread and the wine, we receive both the forgiveness of our sins and the power of His endless life. The power to serve God in faith and to serve our neighbors in love. The Spirit calls us to become what God says we are when we were buried and raised again with Christ in the washing of holy baptism. I cannot tell you how I cannot tell you with any precision how long any of us has here on earth or specifically to what service to God and to your neighbor you should undertake. That too only comes through the working of the Spirit, that Lord and giver of life who spoke through the prophets and the apostles to give you God's word of truth and of guidance. I can say with certainty, however, that the ongoing study of God's Word will reveal to you constantly what God does and does not want you to become and how God does and does not want you to live. Each of us is called not to point to ourselves as James and John tried to do initially, but to point to the crucified and the risen Christ, the Son of God who gave His life as a ransom for many. Whether or not God will require any of us to die a martyr's death like James or other apostles and believers, no one can say. But we are called to keep our eyes on Jesus and to change and to grow however haltingly, however awkwardly, and to give our lives away in humble service until there is no breath left in us. May God grant you both that gift and that strength in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.